one of my more enduring Olympic memories, and I did always love the Olympics. Uh, I was a sucker for ceremonies and, and big events like this. Um, but uh, it involved Derek Redmond in the 1992 Barcelona Games. Redmond was of Great Britain. Uh, he was one of the favorites to win the 400 meters that particular Olympic year. But about halfway through the semifinal heat, he pulled up and, and crumpled to the track. He had tore his hamstring. And so he ride there in agony for just a couple of moments, and then he um, struggled to, to get back on his feet, and he began hobbling uh, along the track, hobbling toward the finish line. Uh, eventually, his father came down from the stands uh, and began to assist him, and together they made that arduous walk around the track. Uh, I chose this particular photo to show you for the, 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 the fact that it has one of the race officials there. Um, and if you watch, I'd encourage you to watch the, watch the YouTube clip from this. Uh, there's some of them that are like set to music and all this stuff. Don't watch that. Just watch the original uh, accounting of the event, all right? But if you watch that, you'll see that at least five different race officials tried to get him off the track. Uh, This is part of what makes it so moving when you watch it. Um, And particularly the dad, as he realized what the son was trying to do, even before people would come into camera view, you can see he is just telling them, stay away from us, (laughs) you know. And people began to realize what was happening and and what he was wanting to do in terms of crossing that finish line. And the other thing you, you, if you watch the original, the other thing that starts to to really draw you in is, is the crowd noise. And the crowd begins to realize what is happening. I mean, the race is long over, you know, so there's the cheer of the crowd during the race. But then as everyone realized what's happening back on the track, the crowd there in Barcelona stands to its feet and there's just a deafening roar as they honor this this young man. He had trained for years to run this race and nothing was going to keep him from the finish line. (laughs) Paul, here in Philippians 3, uh, suggests to us that this is how we ought to think about the Christian life. Paul saw the Christian life as a race. Let's look at the text here, uh, just a few short verses, chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus." Let those of us who are mature 
think this way. And if anything, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So Paul sees the Christian life as a race. He is approaching it with a certain mindset. And in a very overt way here in verse 15, he says that anyone, any believer, any mature believer, anyone who gets it in terms of their faith should adopt the same mindsets. Again, what Paul says here in verse 15 goes well beyond just his relationship to the Philippian believers and what he's calling them to do. Let those of us who are mature think this way. He puts it forward as sort of this timeless principle. So I want us to reflect this morning on the components of that mindset. What does it look like to have a race mentality? What are the characteristics of a mature believer? If you're a new believer, what should you be aspiring to? And if you consider yourself to be a mature believer, does this reflect your mindset? your orientation. Three aspects of a race mentality that certainly surface here in the text. The one is the prize. This whole idea of a prize, something that is out there in front of us, right? Paul uses the language overtly in verse 14. He talks about the prize that he is striving for. But when you read this text, uh, he really references this prize multiple times. So here's a portion of the text that we just read. And I've just taken liberties to, to do some underlining here just to draw attention to it, okay? So not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So Paul is reflecting on this repeatedly in this text, that the prize that is before him. Now what does Paul have in mind What has so captured his attention? What is it that he is aspiring to obtain? He's clearly referencing uh, uh, something that he had talked about earlier, right? We're picking up here in verse 12, and immediately he's talking about something. He's referring to something. Not that I have already obtained this. What is he talking about? So it takes us back to uh, chapter 3, particularly verses 9 through 11 where Paul has been reflecting on what he has gained in Christ, right? He had this whole list of accomplishments that he had considered to be gain, but since he has come to receive Christ and and, and think about what he has gained in Christ, he's considered all of that other stuff as loss compared to the surpassing value of having gained Christ, So he's reflecting on that, and he's reflecting on different aspects of what he has in Christ, different aspects of his salvation. 
Uh, in verse 9, he talks about uh, really what I call justification. He says, having been found in him, having been found in Christ. No longer was Paul uh, a sinner deserving uh, of, of the judgment of, of a holy God. Uh, Paul now had a new standing. He was in Christ. He shared in the righteousness of Christ. Christ's future was now his future. So he has this new status that he reflects upon. And then in verse 10, he, he reflects on sanctification. He talks about having experienced the power of Christ's resurrection. Uh, the life-giving power of God. Now, Paul had seen it in his own life, right? Uh, not only in his radical conversion, but in the transformation that took place in his life. God had empowered him for ministry. God had, uh, had changed the lives of countless people through Paul's ministry. So he was experiencing the life-giving power of God in his life. And then at the end of verse 10 and verse 11, he really reflects on another aspect of what he has in Christ, and that's glorification. Uh, the, 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 he says, I, I, I hope to attain to the resurrection of the dead. So he's looking forward to the culmination of his salvation. Right? And that's what leads him to say then in verse 12, not that I have obtained this. Paul had not yet experienced the resurrection of the dead. He had not yet, in his words, been made perfect yet. He still had uh, issues. He had moral deficiencies. He he had physical problems, right? He had some uh, thorn in the flesh that had created great pain for him, that had limited him in his ministry capacity. So he had not yet been made perfect. This was still in the future, right? But he was striving on to obtain this. The resurrection of the dead was the prize that Paul had in his mind. This was the, the great hope that was out in front of him. And what a prize it is. The great prize that is awaiting every believer. Paul uh, reflects on it in other passages as well. For example, Romans 8 Paul writes, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Uh, we're very aware of that, are we not? Uh, creation is groaning. Things are not the way that they're supposed to be. And Paul goes on to say, not only in, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly. Even Christians, right? We're not immune uh, even those of us who have the indwelling Spirit of God, we still feel the groaning. And notice how Paul ends this. As we eagerly, as we wait eager, eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Like this is kind of end game stuff for Paul. When, when the dead are raised to life and bodies are transformed and the curse of sin is done away with and there is no more dementia or cancer or aging or chronic pain. Uh, there's no relational friction. There's no estrangement or divorce, right? All these things are done away with. And this is what Paul has in mind, that great endgame 
when all things are made new and made right, the resurrection of the dead. He said, I haven't attained to it yet, but it's what I'm moving towards, right? So this is the, this is the mindset here, the, the, the prize. Uh, I find a, a, another interesting passage here in Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, here, the writer to the Hebrews again uses race imagery. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And then he goes on to say, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That even Jesus had a prize mentality, <laughs> right? He's, 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 he knows what's coming as he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, <laughs> under the press, right? Wishing that this cup could pass from him. But as he goes to the cross, he does so for the joy that was set before him, right? For the prize, writer here doesn't get into all that's involved in that, but this prize mentality is one that we certainly ought to to orient around. Many companies create incentive programs, right, to build morale, to retain employees, to inspire hard work. They might offer regular recognitions for excellent service. They might offer professional development opportunities or profit sharing or health and wellness offerings, tuition reimbursement, additional time off, etc., etc. But uh, we know uh, that um, we, we do well when there's something in front of us, right, that we can work towards. Uh, Mr. Marble was my fifth grade Sunday school teacher. And he had extended a Bible memory challenge to us, and it was sizable. Matter of fact, we all were kind of joking, the boys in our class, that this was like an impossible goal. I don't remember off the top of my head what it was, but it was a big chunk of Scripture. And so Mr. Marble, being an entrepreneurial businessman with resources, decided to incentivize the, uh, the, the endeavor and he offered us, for those who would complete the Bible memory project, a ride in his airplane. He was a, a licensed pilot or uh, a baseball bat. He was very offended. I was not at all interested in the airplane ride because I get terribly motion sick. That did not sound like a prize to me. But he had my attention at baseball bat as a 10, 11-year-old. Uh, and uh, I found out that I could memorize Scripture Right? And that's part of, I think, what he wanted to achieve. He wanted us to think beyond what maybe we thought we could do and stretch. You know, Paul, again, has this prize mentality. And I want you to just stop for a minute and think about this. This ought to be something that's out in front of us as well. Why is the resurrection of the body such an important part of the Christian hope? Why is it such a wonderful prize? Let me just tease it out for you. The final prize is not a trophy. It's not that I simply get to escape the confines of a physical body, that I get to go float in the clouds and play a harp. The 
prize is the resurrection of the dead, that my body will be raised and transformed, uh, that uh, all of the, the, the disabilities and things that I encounter and the effects of aging will be no more. The body will no longer be subject to death. If I told you that the prize was a cure for your cancer, a cure for your diabetes, Something that would allow you to see. Something that would allow you to hear. Something that would allow you to live forever. It's all of that. (laughs) Wrapped into one. It's the greatest prize that could be put forward. The resurrection of the dead. Life as God intended it to be lived on a new earth. So Paul was running with this remarkable prize in front of him, and we should do the same. We should run with a prize mentality. The text also here talks about the press. So Paul's living in anticipation of the resurrection of the dead, the coming culmination of his salvation. It's the great prize. And twice he says that he presses on to make it his own. Again, reinforcing the race imagery here. It means to move quickly or energetically towards some objective, to run, to strive, to pursue, to seek after. Paul understood that the Christian life was not a static state. It was a a great adventure, a great cause, the greatest of all causes in which we should expend ourselves. The mature Christian, the one who who gets it, is not passive and apathetic, simply resting on a prayer that they prayed years ago, but active and ambitious, engaged in the struggle and strain and suffering. Paul repeats himself for emphasis here in the text. I want to kind of draw attention to that again with the visual of the text here. I know the print's a little bit smaller here to get it all on one view. But here in verse 12, he says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And then he essentially repeats himself in verses 13 and 14. He again says, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, I press on. So he he, he he reiterates it, again, for emphasis here in the text. But uh, the second time he says it, we do see some differences. In some ways, he kind of uh, expands out on his thoughts. And the other thing that he does in verse 13 is he says, brothers. So he's relating his experience, and then he says, my brothers and sisters. <laughs> he appeals to them. He asks for their attention. He Asks them to pay attention. He draws them into his experience. And he also expands out on this idea of what it means to press on. Three distinct phrases here in the the second portion, in the repeat portion, that tease out this concept. First, there's a singular focus when we think about pressing on. 
He says, but one thing I do. You know, there's part of a runner's mentality, a race mentality. One thing I do. He was focused on the course and that finish line that was ahead of him. And he was not to be dissuaded. I'm increasingly convinced that distraction is one of our biggest enemies. That the test of prosperity is every bit as difficult as the, the, the test of persecution. And you look at the parable of the soils and you have the, the hard soil, the, the stony path that doesn't allow the seed of the gospel to, to, to enter the soil, enter the heart. Right? And then you have the good soil that receives the seed of the gospel and produces, grows and produces fruit. But then you have these middling soils. And particularly the, the weedy soil. You know, it, the seed germinates in the soil. It grows up. But before it can produce fruit, it is choked out by the weeds. And Jesus gives his explanation of that parable to say... Uh, that those weeds represent the cares or concerns or interests of this life, of this culture, and the deceitfulness of riches. Neither are inherently bad things. I have to fix things at my house, right, that keep breaking. And, uh, you know, so th- these things happen. And I have to deal with money. You know, it's, it's, it's not an inherent evil. It's just, it's just a reality of life, right? But, but if we're not careful, these things can begin to creep in and choke out and distract us away from the main things, the eternal things. And so part of what Paul has in mind here when he talks about pressing on is this singular focus, this one thing I do. But there's also a persistent forgetfulness. He says, forgetting what lies behind. Interesting concept. Uh, why, why is uh, you know, a fixation on the past problematic in our spiritual walk? I think one of the reasons why it can be problematic is that past accomplishments can fuel pride and lead us away from a dependence on God. I think this is at least in part what Paul has in mind here because he just got finished listing, right, a laundry list of his past accomplishments in verses uh, 3 through 11. Uh, He talked about his pedigree as a Pharisee and all of the different things that he was depending on for his salvation. And Paul says, I have forgotten those things. I have put those things behind me. So that's certainly one danger of a focus on past accomplishments. But I think past failures can also cause us to lose heart in our walk with Christ. Again, I'm a, I've got this melancholy streak and I can be rehashing and lamenting choices and things that I made years ago. I can't, I, I can't let them go. <laughs> eating me alive, you know. Christ has forgiven me, but I have trouble forgiving myself, right? Moving on. And so, you know, this idea of as a runner, a race mentality, that I'm, I'm moving forward. 
Yes, we learn lessons, that, mistakes along the way. I chalk that one up <laughs> as, a, as a life lesson, but I move forward, right? And this is a, a race mentality that Paul embraces here and commends to us. And then a strenuous exertion. Uh, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead. And so all of this, again, is, is what Paul has in mind when he's thinking about this idea of pressing on, to press. Uh, hopefully Amy Carmichael is a familiar name to you. She was a missionary um, in, uh, in India. She was originally from Ireland. Uh, she came from a, not a wealthy family, but a financially stable family. But her father died when she was 16, And she became deeply moved and sensitized to the poverty-stricken children and the orphans in Belfast. She was 20 when Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, came to her area to speak at a Bible conference. And she she responded. She came under conviction. And she actually made application to be a missionary with China Inland Mission. And she was denied because of her health. She was very sickly. She was not a great candidate for missionary service. But she was persistent and burdened for the people of the world, so she would eventually go to Bangalore, India, where she would invest the next 55 years of her life without furlough. One of her frustrations was the perceived laziness of many of the British missionaries in India. She called them veranda-type missionaries. And part of it flowed out of the fact that uh, India was a British colony at the time, and there was sort of this superiority mindset on the part of the British missionaries who were there in India. And this frustrated her. She didn't consider herself British. I suppose there's an Irish backdrop in all of that, right? But she, she, she had a distinct uh, sens- sensitivity to that type of of uh, mindset, and she prayed that God would protect her from complacency. In her late 40s, she fell and was severely injured, bedridden for the better part of the last 20 years of her life. But during that time, she wrote 16 additional books relating her experience and calling Christians into lives of active service. She is one who exemplifies what Paul's talking about here in terms of pressing on. She didn't just settle for uh, 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 sort of this low-level Christianity, uh, for just knowing that she was going to go to heaven when she died, that her sins had been forgiven, but she was actively engaged in service for Christ, recognized that she had been called into a great race, What is Paul getting at here? How does this fit into the context of the letter? I want to just remind you of what Paul had just said in Philippians 3, 1 through 11. He had just confronted the Judaizers, right? These were Jewish, observant Jewish people who were uh, suggesting that you must be circumcised and you must obey all the ceremonial laws of Moses in order to be saved. They were making additions, additional requirements uh, uh, to the gospel. And Paul confronted them 
uh, in no uncertain terms. He had some choice names for them, right? So he confronts this whole concept of legalism, of trying to work your way to God. But Paul now also here, in verses 12 through 16, confronts what we would call license, the mindset that I'm a Christian, I've received God's grace, I can do whatever I want. And Paul calls these believers, calls all of us to have the mindset of a race that we would expend ourselves in a great cause, not to earn our salvation, but because we have been saved, because we have received such a great salvation. We sang about it this morning. This, this type of love demands my heart, my soul, my all. I'm going to misquote the great hymn right, that we just sang this morning. So, this, uh, this is what Paul's wanting to communicate to them. Mature Christians press on. They work hard. They strain towards the finish line. They recognize what they have been given in Christ. We've been called to stand against the strong currents of secular culture. We've been called to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to hard places, to press on. Finally, the perspective. Why does Paul press on? Why does he feel the need to press on to attain the resurrection of the dead? Do we have to work for this aspect of our salvation? Isn't it already assured? Paul twice, I mentioned that he repeats himself for emphasis here, but he twice frames this race perspective around the person and work of Christ. Our success is bound up in Christ's success. He says, I haven't obtained the resurrection of the dead yet, but I press on to obtain it because Christ has laid hold of me. It's a word play there. He says, I I, I strive to lay hold of the resurrection of the dead because Christ has laid hold of me. So, So Paul's effort in his striving is all premised on the work of Christ. The word because is the key word there. I press on to lay hold because Christ has laid hold on me. So our success is bound up in Christ's success. And our effort is grounded in Christ's call. Again, verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So again, he is reflecting on the fact that God has called us into a race. God has called us upward. God has called us into fellowship with himself. This was not a missionary call. Paul had been called to be a missionary, called to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul is just describing the upward call of God in Christ, the call to salvation. This is a call that's been extended to each one of us to come to God through Christ, through the shed blood of Christ, to have our sins forgiven, to be brought into a, a renewed relationship with our Creator. And so Paul, again, is reflecting on the fact that he has been called by God into this race. 
Another uh, more recent Olympic story has to do with Simone Biles. You're undoubtedly familiar with uh, the gymnast. Uh, Entered into the 2021 Olympics as one of the favorites, but in the midst of competition, withdrew for mental health reasons. And we all learned a new vocabulary word when we found out that she had a severe case of the twisties. Right? In other words, she was very disoriented in the midst of her routine. She couldn't maintain a sense of equilibrium as to where she was in the air. And I'm like, I get it, you know, (laughs) right? I'm not sure how you maintain a sense of where you are in the air when you're doing a triple flip and three twists and whatever else is going on there, right? So I'm certainly not being critical of her at all. I have no idea what she is going through, but that's the point. She has all these physical traits as a gymnast, but the real battle is still in the mind, right? There's this mental component, and teams hire sports psychologists, right, to help athletes get their heads in the right place. The same is true in the Christian life. The Christian life is tough. It places great demands on us. It puts us uh, in the midst of great opposition. Uh, There's tremendous discouragement when we long to see people's lives transformed. We see people reject Christ. We see people walk away from him. Uh, We experience opposition, betrayal, resentment. We're misrepresented by the culture. I mean, there are are some brutally difficult aspects of the race. And Paul is urging us to adopt a certain way of thinking there in verse 15, right? He wants them to understand what they have in Christ, that he has secured the victory, that he has laid hold on them, (laughs) and that they have been called by God through Christ into this great race. Redmond, Derek Redmond had, uh, matter of fact, one of the commentators says, if you watch that YouTube clip, they say, you know, there's a great hit, as he's making his way with his father down the thing, and the people are cheering, he says, there's a great history in in British racing, in British running, you know, that, and maybe in some sense, Redmond was, was feeling the, the weight of representing his country well. <laughs> I don't know all that was in his mind, but my friends, it is a privilege to run under the flag of Christ. Right? Do we realize what we are involved in? And the victory is secured. We can run knowing that we will win. The outcome is not in doubt And Paul wants us to live and run in light of that reality. I leave you with this uh, little summary quote. It's not a quote, it's just a summary of the text. If I boil it down today, that our great future hope, the resurrection of the dead, should cause us to strive, not to settle. And we need this reminder Again, maybe you're a new believer still trying to figure all this out. (laughs) Get a sense for what you've been called to. Not just to have your sins forgiven, but to be brought into a great race, a great endeavor, with a great prize. I think for those of us who are mature, would consider ourselves to be mature believers, we have to ask ourselves the question, 
Am I striving or am I settling?